Connor Esiason, and you're listening to Breathe In, a cystic fibrosis podcast presented by the Boomer Esiason Foundation and GunnerEsiason.com. This podcast series has been made possible by Vertex, Novartis, Digital Credit Union, and Atlantic Health. The views expressed on Breathe In, a cystic fibrosis podcast are that of Gunnar Esiason, Tiffany Rich, and guests, and not necessarily those of the Boomer Esiason Foundation. Nothing in this podcast series should be considered medical advice. Such advice can only be given by a physician who's experienced with cystic fibrosis. The Boomer Esiason Foundation, Gunnar Esiason, Tiffany Rich, and guests cannot be held responsible for any damage which may result from using the information on this podcast without the permission of your medical doctor. You're listening to Breathe In, a cystic fibrosis podcast. All right, hey, it's Gunnar Esiason. We are back for another episode of Breathe In. It's April. It's Organ Donation Awareness Month. Tiffany, how are you? Happy Organ Donation Awareness Month. Oh, thanks. I'm doing great. I just went to Vegas and (laughs) was at the ACM Awards. That was so fun. And, you know, just had a little break from the hospital, and then I have to go get an endoscopy this week. So that's great. You (laughs) you have the whirlwind of a life right now, Uh, especially from your hospitalization. Now you're in Vegas. Now you got to go back. Uh, yep. That sounds super fun. Uh, yeah. uh, I can't say I'm jealous. Uh, yeah. I just got back from my admitted students weekend at uh, Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. Uh, so fun. If you can hear it in my voice, it sounds like I may have had a little too much fun. Yeah. Um, but I'm excited to live there for the next uh, couple years of my life starting this summer. Um, yeah. But the meat of the podcast, we are joined today by Marge Carfora. She's 36 years old, living with cystic fibrosis in New Jersey, um, and she is 14 years post double lung transplant. We're going to learn a little bit about Marge here in a minute, um, but we're going to tell you that Marge is actually going to be joining us for a residency on Breathing Podcast, our very first residency on the podcast, so she'll be with us for three or four episodes. Uh, Marge, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, guys. I'm happy to be here today. We are uh, so excited to have you, and I know you have uh, probably the craziest life story I think I've ever heard in my entire life, so I'm excited to really <laughs> kind of dive into it. Um, sure. For those of you who don't know, Marge is actually honored at a Boomer Esiason Foundation event uh, about a month ago. She won the Michael Brennan uh, Courage Award, so um, Marge is now uh, part of the family at the Boomer Esiason Foundation, so we're excited to have her on the podcast. Uh, Marge, yeah. why, don't you, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I really appreciate all that. The, the Booming Celebration Gala was awesome. So I was happy to be a part of that. Um, so I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis when I was three months old, um, back in July of 1983. Um, I have an older sister, Kate, who was completely healthy. So my parents had no reason to believe that um, there would be, you know, anything different with me. But obviously, that wasn't the case. Um, my mom you know, had this feeling that something was wrong with me based on my just, you know, crankiness. I wasn't gaining weight. I was diagnosed with failure to thrive. Kind of all of the, you know, normal, uh, you know, happenings before you get, you know, diagnosed with CF. Um, and then a, a really smart pediatrician kind of kissed me, tasted the salt on my skin and decided to get the CF sweat test. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's the, the diagnosis. Skin. The salty skin. Yeah, in the, so it was pretty classic. In the in the old days of CF, like I feel like you hear a lot of those. The old days, the eighties of, yeah, uh, of 80s. CF, like it, it kind of feels like <laughs> like that was how a lot of people like kind of went about it. Like the the yeah. CF diagnosis was like a kiss or like something like that. In fact, yeah. I actually had. I think I told this story in the podcast before. I had like a crazy babysitter when I was like growing up. 
and you know she found out that I had like the salty skin. So next thing you know, there I was getting licked by the babies. <laughs> I wonder how many of us have been licked in our lifetime, yeah, yeah, yeah. babies and children. I know, I know. Um, yeah. So you know, and it, you know, it's 1983, so my parents didn't have access to the internet or anything to right. really tell them what cystic fibrosis was. And of course, I was diagnosed right before the July Fourth holiday, so wow. completely no answers for the entire weekend. And yeah. then the next week, we were set up with a CF center locally, and I was admitted to the hospital at Newark Beth Israel for for three weeks because I already had pneumonia mm-hmm. by that point. So my first exacerbation at three months old. Wow, um, that's yeah. that's pretty wild. That's um, I mean, back in the old days, the old days. See if I keep saying it, it's like I am the oldest one here, so I'll take it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's like I feel like the the medication choice was obviously very limited, and going to the doctor back then, uh, yeah. you know, I even I is like. I can't imagine because I was 10 years before I was diagnosed is kind of like, here's like a handful of medication. Good luck. We'll see you in six months. And, uh, and that's literally what it was. <laughs> I think they taught them how to do chest, chest PT, um, mm-hmm. what the nebulizers were, what enzymes I was going to have to take and kind of sent me on my way. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. So, um, so, and you know, you grew up, you know, I, I think, you know, what was your childhood like? You know, when would, did you kind of realize that you were maybe a little different than your friends and, you know, what was the state of your CF? You know, did you did, did you kind of have like a severe, uh, severe health in, during your childhood or were, were things relatively normal? So things were relatively normal, actually. You know, the doctors that originally told my parents that I wouldn't live until the age of five, um, which is obviously really difficult for parents to hear. But they really took that kind of tucked it away and said, that's not going to happen. And treated me like a normal kid. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we never sat down and had this like big revealing conversation about what cystic Mm -hmm. fibrosis was or what it meant. It was just kind of part of our life. It was part of our routine. And, you know, my sister was very involved in it as well, just with treatments. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we we went to the beach. We, We went to fairs. We went to the amusement park. There was nothing really that my parents didn't encourage me to do. Um, you know, they encouraged me to do well in school. I was never allowed to take a day off unless it was for something, you know, really serious. Mm -hmm. Um, they, they pushed me. It was a lot of tough, tough, that was like my sport, my exercise to try to, um, you know, stay healthy with my lungs and, you know, airway, extra airway clearance. And I probably realized I was a little bit different from other kids, I think maybe when I was like eight or nine years old and it hit me like, why do I have to go in? We're playing kickball and I have to do another treatment. Like, I don't, we're having fun. Like, why do I have to do that? Uh But, you know, it's just, you know, then you're just like, all right, well, this is part of my treatment and this is just what I have to do. Uh Right. So. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think like that's that seems pretty typical. I think for most people we see if growing up that yeah. you know you you like have these very quote unquote normal parts of childhood and like you do all these normal activities. Like for me, I was playing soccer, little league baseball, ice hockey. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was kind of like you know going on like little trips with my family. You know, like when like little kids go on trips with like you know with the with the parents, it's kind of cute, whatever. <laughs> um, like that's like that was kind of like my childhood. And I think Tiffany, you've spoken uh, that yeah. you've had you've had a lot of, of those uh, um, memories as well. Yeah, I definitely was very like um, I saw myself as a normal kid. I would do everything. We would go camping to the lake every single weekend. Um, I'd play sports. I was doing soccer, gymnastics, dance. And, you know, I didn't see myself as any different, except I had to do an extra little thing about doing an inhaler or going and doing my breathing treatment or taking enzymes when I ate. That's about 
how I saw it. I wasn't too different. I mm-hmm. just had a little bit of an extra obstacle to mm-hmm. go through. And then, so, so Marge, from there, obviously, you grow up. Um, and then, you know, it's, from my understanding, that's kind of when some of your challenges started to come on as you mm-hmm. kind of like got like through high school and into college. Yeah. So, I mean, my first hospitalization again after, you know, the initial one was when I was in fourth grade. And from that point, it was just kind of a consistent yearly or every or twice a year type of thing that I needed IV antibiotics and to go into the hospital for a clean out. Um, And, you know, I was lucky that I could do home IV care. So I wasn't in the hospital for the full two weeks every time I had to go in. Um, And I started, of course, with peripheral IVs. And then as my veins got weaker, I moved up to pick lines. Um, and then once I hit middle school, I, I really did see quite, um, I I started to decline and I could tell that I was slowing down compared to my peers. Uh And probably the biggest hurdle for me in middle school was keeping my weight up. Mm -hmm. I was coughing so much, burning so Mm -hmm. many calories. I think when I graduated eighth grade, I, I weighed like 80 pounds. Uh Um, I'm four foot 11, so it's, it's not, but it's, it's really thin and my BMI was low and. The doctors were very honest with me at that point that I needed a feeding tube. Um, uh-huh. Otherwise, they were just afraid if I got another exacerbation, I wasn't going to be able to fight through it. Right. So second day of my freshman year, I hopped into the hospital and got that feeding tube. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. That's uh, because when like I was a 14 year old girl having to get a feeding tube. <laughs> yeah, but, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I was when I was in middle middle school, um, eighth grade, I was only 69 pounds. Yeah. And um, they were concerned about that because I'm this I'm four eleven and three quarters. I usually round up five okay. and three quarters. <laughs> By the way, it's like it's like I'm me. It's like me and the Munchkins ten. right now. Four <laughs> ten and three quarters, Tiff, and I, I always, always round up. <laughs> I always round up to five foot, but I'll stay here. But um, so but th- back then I was shorter then. So um. You know, I was still really thin, so they had to. They said I'm either going to get a feeding tube or they're going to give me a um, a a supplement to make me hungry. So they did that, and thankfully, I went to In and Out Burger like every single day. And (laughs) (laughs) they made my order order in the drive-through, and I was able to gain up to I think it was eighty something pounds. So in like six months, so ingest ingest that grease. Bring on all that in and out burger grease (laughs) and the special sauce. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) all the in and out. Um, That's great. That's that's pretty funny. I I didn't know that story, Tiffany. So, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, so I guess the podcast new title is me is Gunner and the Munchkins. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I think, uh, uh, so it sounds like things started to take a little bit of a turn. Do you remember like a specific yeah. moment when, you know, you were kind of like, this isn't going the right way? So, I mean, all through high school, I, I struggled just with, with walking up the stairs, I remember being really short of breath. I remember, you know, we used to have three minutes to get from class to class. Yeah. And I, I was consistently late cause I just could not walk that fast. Right. Um, and I remember being so tired in high school. Like I was just by my afternoon class, I was falling asleep. Um, I still maintained my grades. I was still in AP classes. I was still involved in every single activity I could be in just because that's, that was my personality. Um, and I remember at night when my friends were going out um, and hanging out, I was going home and rewriting my notes from school that day so I could kind of teach myself what I what I was supposed to learn when I fell asleep during class. So I knew in high school I was definitely 
declining, like the progressive side of CF was definitely starting to show pretty mm-hmm. consistently. Um, and I remember, I think I had, I, I needed an, IV antibiotics at least three times my senior year. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely um, becoming more of a struggle, but I had college in my sights and I knew I wanted to get myself healthy, healthy enough to attend college which I ended up doing, and I ended up going to Lafayette College. You know, I think um, the the moment when you realize the progressive side of the CF is, like, sort of happening and, like, you're in the middle of it, things, mm-hmm. like, things definitely change. Like, it, it feels scary isn't, isn't the word that I'm trying to use. It, it, it definitely feels uh, very real, you know? Like, you, you kind of, like, know that CF is there. You have, like, the, the beast of the you know, the disease is kind of lingering behind you. And then all of a sudden there is a switch that flips and you're like, Oh, I'm actually in the progressive side of the illness. Like that's what this feels like. Um, and you know, I, I think Tiffany, you know, you've definitely, you know, have said that, especially, you know, when you were in college as well. Um, and I'm excited to hear, uh, you know, your college experience, Marge, and compared to Mm -hmm. what Tiffany went through, uh, because in in my opinion, it, it definitely seems very similar. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that I think our experience was extremely similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a I had a decent start to to college, but again, I had trouble like walking around campus and keeping up with my friends. But I loved the flexibility of being able to create my own class schedule. I could do my treatments more often, um, and I did really well for the first two years. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of my sophomore year, I had this awesome internship, and. I took just this massive nosedive. Like Mm -hmm. I remember being at my internship and I was barely able to walk from my car to the front door. And I was like, okay, the best thing for me to do is to leave this internship early and get admitted and, you know, get some IV antibiotics before I go back to school. I need to get myself healthy. Mm -hmm. When I was admitted at that point, I started spiking like 104 degree fevers. They actually thought I had a blood infection from the pick line because my fevers were so high. Mm-hmm. And in reality, it was a really, really bad exacerbation that I was having. Yeah. So that was kind of like the real turning point for me where things got, you know, that I was in the hospital for three weeks and my family was called in to say goodbye several times. Yeah. Um, and friends and family were coming and stopping by because they really didn't think I was going to pull out of it. I thought everybody was crazy. I was like, you guys are all nuts. I'm not going anywhere. Like I have way too much to do. I don't know what you all think this is. Everybody's stopping so dramatic. But when you look back, when I look back at it now, I'm like, oh, wow, I, I was really close to, to not pulling out of that one. So I was lucky that I did. Right. Tiffany, I wonder if you felt like, you know, during your college years, when you, when your, when your disease started to progress, you know, what, you know, what was that like? You know, how, you know, were were your friends any different towards you or was your day to day life just like completely miserable? I mean, you know, what, or, you know, or were you able to, you know, get through day to day without, you know, with, you know, no minimal problems? Well, so like Marge, um, I had that decline when I was 21 um, that I just like plummeted. And at that point I kind of very much felt progression of CF and I couldn't, I was crawling on the floor. I couldn't even walk cause I couldn't breathe. And, um, thankfully we got me to the hospital and stuff. But, um, I think after that, I just kind of didn't ever feel the same, you know, as before. And, um, you know, my friends kind of, I think after that understood how, how serious this was that 
you know, I'm getting to a point that my lungs are declining a lot and that I'm going to need to be extra cautious on things and I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to do things. So I think when I was in college, I kind of understood like maybe I shouldn't be um, just saying that I can do everything. Like I need to rest my, I need to rest and I need yeah, to. Yeah, I had actually, that same feeling too. Yeah. That's when you, I slowed down. Right. You need to slow down. You kind of need to take a back seat and just realize you can't do everything, but you can do as much as you can. And that's just enough, you know? And, um, I think that was important because then, you know, a few years later I had to get put on the transplant list. So, uh, then we, uh, then we really understood like this is life or death kind of deal. So in foreshadowing, I guess kind of what happened to you, Marge, you know, what, what was your next step, uh, from, from there? So very, very similar to Tiff's story, actually. Um, so I ended up on full-time oxygen at that point, um, Mm -hmm. and talked to my doctors about the fact that like, if I was looking for any sort of meaningful long-term survival that I needed to get listed for a transplant. So I'm very stubborn and wanted to go back to school for my junior year. (laughs) <laughs> so I went back to school. I finished my last exam from that first semester. Nice. And instead of packing up to go home for winter break, I packed up and went to Philly to get um, evaluated for a lung transplant at UPenn. Nice. Um, ultimately, I was accepted within like two weeks. And at the time that I was listed, there was no lung allocation score. Okay. It was basically how how long you were on the list. Oh, um, wow. Determined okay. where you were on the list. So for me, they told me I was going to have to wait two years. Oh, wow. Okay. So that at first to me seemed like fine. Right. And then I went back to school to finish my junior year. Mm-hmm. And I just remember like every day being like, there is just no way yeah. I'm going to be alive in two years. Like mm-hmm. I couldn't walk up the stairs anymore. I had to have my friends carry me up and down the stairs. Yeah. If I felt up to going out to socialize, people would give me piggyback rides out. Yeah. I, I couldn't walk. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my knees and, and ankles were swollen with edema cause my body mm-hmm. just wasn't clearing the fluid. My body was just yeah. giving, giving yeah. out. So I called my parents and I said, we need to do something. Um, we need to find an alternative. And we did our own research and found Auctioner Medical Center in New Orleans. Okay. Um, and they were very willing to take a look at my case. They had shorter wait times down there. I would, if I went, I would be the first one on the list for my wow. height and blood type. Um, so that was really big. So again, my parents wanted me to like quit school right then and there and leave. And of course me being stubborn, I said, no, I want to. And I don't know how you felt Tiff, but I feel like staying in school was, it kept me feeling like normal Definitely. and it motivated me. And I think it kept me in shape because I was still kind of walking around campus. Yeah. And and I think it, it kept your brain sharp too. Yep. You know what I mean? You weren't just like sitting around doing nothing. You were actually learning and you kept your mind going and you kept yourself, your mental state better. That makes total sense, Stephanie. I mean, obviously I never really achieved the state that you you two guys are talking about. But, you know, when I graduated college back in 2013, I kind of went through my little bit of decline there, which was which is a little terrifying in and of itself. But. I remember, you know, after school that like I was kind of in a position where I was like, oh my God, how am I going to work? Like, what am I going to do? And like, I, I kind of felt that I, everything was kind of crashing around, crashing down around me. And it, 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 in that time when you're, you're really kind of sitting there doing nothing, things feel like they're falling apart a lot quicker than they probably are because you just have no stimulation whatsoever. Like, you know, you're not 
you're not trying to complete a project at work or you're not up and moving around. And, you know, the, those first three months after my college graduation were really tough because I just had nothing going on. You know, I just, there, yeah. was, there was nothing to do. And it just, the only thing that I was doing was harping on my, you know, my health. So, yeah. you know, I, and I got, life is going on around you. Yeah, too. Yeah. People are moving on and, and yeah. starting jobs and, and it kind of makes you feel like, wow, the life goes on and I'm just here kind of dealing with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's, I think Tiffany, you made a really good point about how it, you know, keeps your mind sharp because as soon as I got back into working, you know, I started coaching football and then working with yeah. the foundation. Like it's like a switch turned on, like, okay, I can, you know, I can do this and I can, it makes me feel better. Like just the fact that I have to walk up to the football field every day and kind of walk around and get, you know, get through practice mm-hmm. on my feet. That's the yeah. only reason I was able to get through it, you know, that, that period of time. So yeah. I, I think that's um, a really good point. Now, now, obviously you went to Oxford Medical Center. What happened from there? Yep. So I was listed right away. Um, we had packed enough stuff for like the three day evaluation and they called and they were like, nope, you're not going home. Rent an apartment, move down here. Uh, you're on the list. Nice. So yeah, my sister had just graduated UConn and she decided that, you know, she just could not concentrate yeah. on trying to find a job. And she really wanted to move down to New Orleans with me. Um, my dad was still working. So my chance that he got we had a ton of visitors come um to visit us in new orleans and see us i did have i had to get a sinus surgery um to put catheters in my sinuses to clear out all of the um the mucus and stuff that was in my sinuses they wanted my sinuses to be really clear for the surgery right so i get home from my sinus surgery the phone rings and they have lungs for me And I've literally only been there for three weeks, right? So it's July now. So we go through the whole thing. We go to the hospital. We wait all day. And then they came in to tell me the lungs were no good. So I I did have a dry run. And I remember, you know, sitting there when the doctor told me at that point, I hadn't eaten food since the night before because I had to have surgery that morning. Uh And I remember him telling me, me just taking a deep breath, being like, Okay, can somebody go get me some food? <laughs> like, <laughs> still it sounds like open. me. <laughs> yeah, it's like I was really disappointed, but like at that point too, I was just so hungry that I was like, okay, I just have to like deal with this and we'll move on. And then, so after that, I waited again until November when I got the actual call. So, nice. and so it sounds like you know your sister and your mom both played a pretty pretty big role with you by both being there in New Orleans with you, and then yeah. obviously you know it, the the family dynamic like changes because your dad's back in Jersey, and you know there's right. a it's kind of like a, a weird like support from far, but also you know you're trying to reinvent the family situation in New Orleans, your your new second home. Yeah, uh, you know what what was that like? So you know, I always say that I think it was better for me to be away because I felt less pressure to be at school and to be social yeah. and to do all that. Right? You don't have that social aspect of your friends being around. So it really was just about me taking care of myself. And mm-hmm. again, we had visitors, like we were dropping one person off at the airport one day and picking <laughs> up another person the next day. That's so nice. we, yeah, we really made some good memories during the wait time. And that was on purpose because I had a conversation with my family saying, listen, this could be the last couple months that I'm alive. And if I'm leaving, I'm leaving with a bang. So we're going to do this. We're going to do this right. We're going to make this good. We're going to have laughs. And we're going to make good memories here. And we, we really, really did. I was very happy we were able to do that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's tough not having your friends and family close by just to sit and have a laugh when you really need to. But, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, yeah I, mean, but it I was, think yeah. it's, it, you know, it's, it's certainly 
you know, one of many ways that CF can be very isolating, mm-hmm. um, especially in the case where, you know, you have to displace yourself to go get a transplant. So, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, isn't super uncommon. You know, obviously the reason you left was for, because there, there was no long allocation score back then, but, you know, people still do that today. You know, they, they, maybe they live in a part of the country where they don't do, you know, lung transplants for people with CF and they have to go to a, a specialized yeah. center. So, you know, it, it is something that does happen still today. Um, yep. So, and I think the hardest part for me was when September hit and everybody was going back to school. Oh, mm-hmm. Right. Because the yeah. summer was fine because everybody's off anyway. And then all of a sudden it was like, wow, it's September and my senior year is starting and I'm not there. Right. But again, I just kept focusing on like, I have to do this. Like it's short term pain for a long term gain. That's what I kept yeah. telling myself. It's true. And, you know, it, it, I would go back to school when I when I could. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so the the transplant cams. What what is the call like, and what what is the immediate aftermath from there? Yeah. So the call uh, came at like seven thirty in the morning. Um, so we kind of gathered our bags, which were already packed, to head to the hospital. I took a quick shower because I didn't know when I was going to get to do that again, and I didn't want to be this patient. <laughs> so <laughs> I went to shower and wash my hair. Um, and then we went to the hospital again, and, and it was a very long wait again where they do some you know, testing, get you ready. Yeah. Um, you're kind of waiting mm-hmm. around. And then they came in to tell me that the lungs were a go. And we, my dad didn't book his flight until we knew it was a go. So I remember kind of saying, you know, see you later to him on the phone and then sitting with my mom and sister in bed and and just, you know, kind of having our little, you know, goodbye and tears. But again, not goodbye. See you later. Mm -hmm. And they gave you, you know, they gave me some good stuff to kind of put me in a happy place and (laughs) wheeled me back to surgery. (laughs) Uh huh. Uh, and then, uh, so Tiffany's kind of always told the story where it's a very social moment kind of before it kind of sounds like everyone's, you know, that, that, that time's very, like, it's filled with a lot of emotion. And then, uh, you know, the aftermath when you wake up, you know, did you kind of, I think everyone kind of romanticizes the idea that you kind of snap out of it, take the big breath and you're like, you're feeling good. Or what was it like for you when you, when you, when you came to? So I still remember coming in and out, and I remember the first thought that I had, which they told so me. It was a while have. ago. This is a while ago. It, it, yeah, it's almost it's almost 15 years ago, but I still remember vividly. They warned me that I would be restrained when I woke up because your initial reaction is to try to pull the breathing tube out. And as soon as I came to, I knew I wanted to pull that breathing tube out, and then I realized I was restrained. So that was kind of like my first <laughs> memory of waking up. And then my second yeah, memory this sucks. was, yeah, this, all right, they, they got me. They know I want to do this. Um, and then my second memory was, when the heck is this doctor going to take these catheters out of my nose? Because I want them to be out. And I actually do remember him taking them out for me because he wanted me to wake up without having them in. And then, I re- you know, we pulled the breathing tube and I was like, oh, my God, I'm alive. So that was like the first, <laughs> the first thought. And wow, I can take a deep breath. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, my lungs still weren't even working at, you know, where they would ultimately end up getting, but it was already so much better. Right. Um, I was still on oxygen when I first woke up. My lungs were a little sticky on the bottom. So like the, the bottom parts of my lungs were sticking together. So the oxygen just kind of helps them inflate and, and get moving and stuff like that. Um, uh, that's but bizarre. I rem- I, yeah, it's so <laughs> bizarre. Well, because they have to like collapse them to, to fit them into, you know, your chest. So yeah. it's very, it's very bizarre. Um, but I remember they had me like sitting up the next day in bed. They had me then move from like the bed to the chair and which was like exhausting. Mm -hmm. I needed like a two hour nap just for sitting up for 45 (laughs) minutes, but 
there's really like they want you up and moving as quickly as possible so that you start to recover. Yeah, definitely. Tiffany, I've never heard you say like or, or, or I guess describe the sensation of having the lungs feeling like sticky or whatever. Do you like? It, do do you I, remember that? You know, I don't remember much, um, but I do remember like they felt kind of weird. But I know the feeling of like getting up and stuff. It's like very exhausting. Yes, it was like I'm gonna do what right now? <laughs> and I have four chest surgery. Right. Yeah. I four I chest like, I, and yeah, I had, lines everywhere. Yeah, I had like the five chest tubes. I had the central line in my neck. I had like. Yep everything going and I was like are you kidding me right now (laughs) I have to get up and they're like yep we're getting you up so then I got up and then I sat in the chair and stuff and they had taken my breathing tube out then and then the next day I think is when I had to get intubated again but um but yeah that initial like getting up and stuff and then I tried to drink water it didn't work well right then (laughs) I wasn't ready but um you know it was just like it's kind of, it's just weird that you can feel your lungs, but you just don't know. They're not working, like she said, in the full capacity. So it's kind of like they're there, but it's not like, it doesn't feel like it's all mucusy and stuff. It just feels like you're breathing air. You know what I mean? So yeah, that's how I, that's how I saw it, uh, felt it and stuff. I was very, I was pretty drugged up. So you know, <laughs> my, my favorite stories of Tiffany are when she talks about being drugged up. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think um, so. So from there, what was the recovery like? And, you know, what was, the, you know, the I guess you're the immediate aftermath. Yep. So mm. I was in the hospital for nine days um, and then they said I could go back to my apartment, which was wow. awesome. Yeah, wow. I, they wanted me out of there as quickly as possible. And, you know, I worked really hard to just kind of walk around the hospital floor and walk up and down the stairs um, in the hospital hallway just to get my strength back. And then when I went back to my apartment, it was basically, I think I had doctor's appointments two days a week, blood work Mm -hmm. three days a week, and then rehab, uh, pulmonary rehab three days a week as well. So it's a full-time job. I mean, recovering is definitely the only thing that you can concentrate on. And, you know, I don't know about you, Tiff, but I was definitely, Mm -hmm. my legs were a lot weaker when I got out of surgery. So I needed to do a lot of work to just build my muscle strength back up. Yeah. Well, I was in the hospital for 32 days and I, um, my legs, I had atrophy so bad. Um, I had no muscle anywhere pretty much. Um, um, but so walking around was so hard for me. I couldn't even get up a curb without holding on to someone, just putting pressure on them. Um, so yeah, I definitely understand that and building it back up is so hard, especially because we're on the steroids. So prednisone and stuff that doesn't allow us to gain it very fast. So definitely it, it's just, it's rough. Recovery is so hard. I, you know, no one, like, you don't, you don't think about it, but it's a major surgery. I think when I went into transplant, I was like, oh, this is going to be easy, whatever. I didn't realize how big of a a surgery it was. So when I did all that, I was like, dang, all right, let's, uh, this is going to be a challenge, but I can do it. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's, it's definitely a challenge, but it's so worth it. So worth it. I agree with that. 
challenging, but so worth it at the end. Mm-hmm. So now, Marge, you know, you kind of go on to the transplant. Um, at what point did you get back to, you know, the, the New York, New Jersey area? Yep. Um, and then I, the, the complications kind of started to begin, didn't they? So, yeah, I actually, my first complication was four months after or four weeks after my transplant. Um, mm-hmm. My my lung functions didn't go up quite as much as the doctors would have liked. So they did a bronchoscopy and we found stage A2 rejection. Okay. So we had to treat that with three days of high dose uh, steroids mm-hmm. and that took care of it. Like it went away and I never heard okay. from it again. Mm-hmm. And then I had a very... Uh, very odd narrowing in my left airway, which uh-huh. was giving me a hard time. So I would have to go into the hospital, do a bronchoscopy, and they kept trying to pop open the airway. And by the third time we did this, it just decided to stay open. Um, so then that no longer became a problem. And then I was able to go home in March. So I got my transplant in November of 2004, and I was home by March of 2005. Mm-hmm. So, wow. and then I went back to visit my friends at college. Mm. There was a huge welcome back party for me. Um, it was really awesome to just kind of be home, be back in New Jersey and start to sort of get back to, you know, somewhat of a life again, um, you know, in my hometown. So, so, I, so yeah. you, I, I can't believe they let you go home that quickly. Like, I, feel yeah, like, well, I feel like these days that never happens. Um, oh, no. and, and also like allow you like <laughs> Go to like have a college party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the middle no, of I all literally it. was like, I'm just gonna go live my life. Like I got, you know, my doctor was very, you know, clear that I got my transplant to not live in a bubble and to live my life. And I was like, okay, I'm okay with that. Let's do it. Right. So I embraced that um, as much as I could. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was good. I, I I came home and I wasn't working yet. I wasn't back at school, so I didn't go back to school until that August to finish my senior year. Uh-huh. So it really was a time where I didn't have to worry about schoolwork. Um, I really just, you know, was worried about getting back into the groove with my friends and taking care of my health and getting used to having a transplant. And like, you know, I, I say that post-transplant recovery takes about a year. Um, and I would say I didn't really start to feel like, you know, quote unquote myself again until a year. Agreed. Yeah, totally. 100%. I did not feel like myself until a year. And I think a lot of that has to do with all the new medication we're on yeah, and like, like just stabilizing side effects. Yep. Yeah. Stabilizing and getting the right meds to uh, counteract those side effects and getting the right dosage and all that stuff. Yep. So, so you, so you went back to college, finished your, you know, you, you, yep. you know, summarily finished up college, you know, you got through that. Um, and, and, and then now what? <laughs> So moved to New York. I got a I got a job in Manhattan. Um, my sister and I ended up moving into New York together. My sister, through this whole thing, decided to change her career path as well. So she went from graduating UConn with a business degree, and now she went back to school to be a nurse. <laughs> so she was studying to be a nurse practitioner when we moved into the city together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just kind of like lived our life. Um, I had a very what I consider to be a normal life, despite all of the transplant, you know, medications. Now I have cystic fibrosis related diabetes. Um, But I was doing all of those things that like a normal 20 year old was doing. I was going down the shore. I was going on dates, meeting people. Um, So it kind of felt like nothing could stop me. Of course, you Mm -hmm. know, that's not how it always goes. So (laughs) I met Jimmy in um, December of 2008. Him and I were, you know, dating and kind of, testing the water, seeing where everything was going to go. I decided in May of 2009 to run a half marathon. Um, So that was five years post-transplant that I ran the half marathon, which was really awesome. Probably my best physical accomplishment since transplant. 
Yeah. Um, being, you know, not being able to walk from, you know, two feet to running 13.1 miles is kind of a big, a big deal. So I was in the best shape of my life. And right after that is when things kind of got a little serious again. So Mm -hmm. I started to have trouble swallowing. Um, and it was everything. It was water, it was food. Um, I started losing weight and I ran around town getting a bunch of different tests. And we found out that I had post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder. So it was a large B cell lymphoma, um, that had wrapped its, uh, that had basically caused a tumor to wrap itself around my esophagus. So that's the pain that I was feeling every time, um, I tried to eat or swallow. So, um, when the doctors called to tell me, um, they said it was very malignant. It was aggressive. It will kill me. Um, I had to get it treated right away. Mm-hmm. So you know, new so what, like, what, what, is, what, 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 like, what is that phone call like? I mean, yeah. like, you're like, I've gone through, yeah, I've already gone through transplant. Now this, yeah, it was, you know, and I had just started a new job too. So of course, I got that phone call in my cubicle at my new job. Um, it was just very scary mm-hmm. and a lot to deal with because I was like, I, this is the happiest I've ever been in my life. Like I'm doing everything I've ever wanted to do. And now you're telling me that, you know, there's this lymphoma that's, you know, potentially could kill me. So I gave myself, usually when something happens, I give myself an hour, which doesn't seem like a lot of time, but an hour to be sad and to kind of cry. And then that's it. Like I suck it up and I have to get over it and I have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So from that point on, it was like, okay, what do we have to do to fix this? Um, and I remember, you know, we had an appointment with the doctor coming up, um, a specialist in PTLD and the pain got so bad that I actually couldn't even wait another day. And I had to get driven down to UPenn and get admitted, um, which was good because I, then I just started treatment right in the hospital. Um, I did four rounds of a medication called Rituxin, which is, you know, a little bit below chemotherapy. So I didn't lose my hair or anything, but it mm-hmm. literally, in four treatments, took the tumor away, and I, wow. knock on wood, have never heard from it again. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. And, you know, the most impressive part of that that I have to give a shout-out to the doctors, <laughs> you know, shout every, a shout-out to the doctors, mm-hmm. you know, everybody kind of dropped their ego at that point and yeah. really worked together because at this stage, you're, you're walking such a fine line between immunosuppression drugs, right. enough of them to keep rejection away but now you have this cancer so you kind of need to bring your immune system back a little bit right. to keep this cancer at bay and my transplant doctor would literally come with me to my appointment with the ptld specialist mm-hmm. and he literally sat in the room with me they were able to talk to each other and come up with a treatment plan and changing my meds together so it wasn't like okay i go to an appointment leave then they call each other then somebody calls me back Right. It was just very, the teamwork was unbelievable. That's great. So yeah. that's actually, un, that is like unbelievable that that that's like the yeah. dynamic that actually played out. That's something that right. like doesn't happen. So that's, no. um, you know, the, the teamwork making the dream work for real. Um, yeah. So now the PTLD is like, eliminated. Um, yeah. <laughs> so like, I, I you know, okay, you're cancer free, be cancer. Awesome. Let's have a party. <laughs> and, and now what? <laughs> <laughs> so just, you know, from that point, I was trying to get my my blood sugars under control because they were still a little crazy. So a lot of focus on the CFRD. Um, I had had a couple run ins with parainfluenza virus and coronavirus and RSV um, that kind of kept me on my toes a little bit. And having I mean, to you're living in New York City. Levels. Like, is that is that shocking? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Like I'm on the subway. I'm with crowds. So mm-hmm. like it, it happens. Um, yeah. 
And then the biggest, you know, the other biggest issue was my sinuses post-transplant. I had one polyp before transplant that never moved, never grew, never went anywhere. As soon as I got my transplant, it was like my entire sinus cavity. was. You sound exactly like me. Yeah. So I never had any issues. I never had one polyp. And then now it's like, hey, hey, what are you doing? (laughs) They're all over. It's, it's, I think I've had seven sinus surgeries. Wow. Six or seven. Um, So, you know, and those are always just tough to recover from and kind of knock you on your butt a little bit. So, um, you know, I'm happy to say, knock on wood, I haven't had to have a sinus surgery in a while. I did lose my sense of smell from having the sinus surgeries, which is a bummer. Um, Although maybe when you have CF, it's not so much of a bummer. (laughs) I can't smell very well either. And like, my smell is like pretty much eliminated but i can smell a little bit if it's very like distinct i can smell it yes you know? yeah i have i got nothing oh, but, wow. but um so then jimmy and i decided to you know from there we decided married decided that we did want to start a family mm-hmm. um so right after our um wedding we had our first appointment with our fertility center did a whole bunch of genetic testing um, before making our embryos. We knew we wanted to use a surrogate and mm-hmm. found out that Jimmy was a carrier of the CF gene. Wow. As well. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. The hits just keep on coming. Yeah. It doesn't so, stop. Now, that's, so that's, like an, okay, that's like another thing I think we should talk about is, you you know, you have the um, – Jimmy's, Jimmy's uh, your husband, is determined to be a cystic fibrosis carrier. Like, it's almost like now what? Like, that's the kind of thing that – like, that does happen. Yes. You know, uh-huh. and it's – you know, it's you know props to you for, you know, getting the testing done um, because that's, you know, ultimately like step number one in yep. the family building process. Um, you know – so, like, I, I guess, you know, is that, like, an emotionally draining thing, or is that something that's like, okay, well, we can kind of take care of this? It, it was very emotionally draining, and I think at that point, it was probably June when we got those results back, and we said, okay, let's take the summer and just talk this through and figure out what we want to do before we just jump into anything, mm-hmm. just to make sure that, you know, we were both on the same page with how we wanted to approach it and our comfort level, um, and we did end up obviously moving forward and we found a company out in Chicago that did PGD testing. So pre-implant, pre-implantation genetic diagnostics. Um, so we created our embryos, we shipped them out to Chicago and they were able to isolate, um, the CF mutation of Jimmy's cause we all, we knew what they were getting from me. That was no surprise. Right. Um, and we were able to see which ones had CF and which ones did not. So, but it, you know, in, in the middle of this, you know, from what I understand, there's, there's another, pretty significant complication with your health as well. Yeah. So right after we did all of that, uh, we found out how many of our kids didn't, did and didn't have CF. Um, and then I started getting some really funky test results back from my gynecologist. And by February of 2015, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Oh, wow. So yes. let's digest that for a moment. Um, <laughs> now is that, was it related to the PTLD or like, is it just from the immunosuppressant drug? Like, how does that happen? Related to the immunosuppressive drugs, um, directly. So, so we like, can is that like, so like, that one back. so you, so you know, for a fact that like, it's like, you're like by taking the immunosuppressant drugs, you know, that you're at a risk for all of these things, essentially. You're, you're at a risk for a lot when you're on immunosuppressive drugs. Um, 
And quite honestly, you know, my doctor told me recently, like, no, you're never going to be out of the woods either. Like you're always, you know, there's always something that could go wrong or something that could happen. So, you know, I don't think they sit there and list everything for you that could potentially go wrong. And I don't know if anybody ever told me like, you know, you could get cervical cancer, but once I got it, it was kind of like, yeah, this is very clearly linked to the immunosuppressive drugs. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I guess like at this point, how, how many years post-transplant were you at this point? So 2015. So that was, um, 11 years. So uh, yeah. So 11 years. Post- I mean, it's amazing that it's not amazing. is not the right word, but it's, it's like in, the, the fact that like, these complications can continue to build on so many uh-huh. or these comorbidities can continue to build on so far post-transplant. And I mean, we also know that, you know, CF is may or may not be associated with other comorbidities of itself is, you know, it, it's kind of like, <clears throat> you know, you're like, I've gotten through all of this stuff so far. I'm 11 years post-transplant. Like things are working out like, but now <laughs> I have to deal with this crap. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I guess like what mm-hmm. always uh, keeps me going is the fact that like, OK, at that point, my lungs are still my lungs are functioning at over 100 percent. So I can breathe. I can get through this. I can get through the surgery and come out the other end and be OK. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I just kind of kept looking at like the life that I had and the life that I wanted and, you know, push through to fight to fight to get through every obstacle that came in my way. It's 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 amazing to hear you say that. Like you know, at least I can breathe. Everything that that's okay. Like it's funny yeah. because I mm-hmm. I kind of you know obviously I haven't dealt with anything near this magnitude, but I always do say that. Okay, my lungs feel good. Like that's that's all I really care about. Everything else I can kind right. of just deal with. You know, yeah, like, you can conquer as, the world as long as long as I can breathe. Like I can actually, you know, I can you know deal with my recent you know foot ligament tear, or you know, like as right. long as I can breathe, I can deal with this cold that I'm having. But like yeah. in your case, like oh, as long as I can breathe, I can deal with cancer again. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's how I felt the last last week when I was going yeah. through all the gallstone stuff. I was like, well, I'm breathing, I'm fine. Yeah. You know, but it's nothing compared to the cancer. But you know what I mean? That's how. That's the mindset we have. And because we have to have in order to be successful. Yeah, exactly. I, and I think it was so important that you had that um, mindset last week just to get through because that's, an, that's right. an annoying complication to deal with. Exactly. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, and I think like also like for yourself, the patient to sit there and like, OK, I can breathe. But at the same time, you're not minimizing what you're dealing with. You're trying to deal with it in like a, in, in a very aggressive, significant way, kind of like you did last, you know, last week, Tiffany. It's, you know, it's certainly you handle that, um, you know, as aggressively as possible. Um, so now, OK, how did, now back to you, March. How did you, I guess, get, 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 you got, you're, well, you got, you've obviously gotten past cervical cancer because we're here four yep. years later. Yeah. So uh, what happened there? So we did a surgery and we got past the cervical cancer. And then, so it, that was February of 2015. I was cleared from the cervical cancer in January of 2016. And then at the same time um, was matched with a surrogate. So I was kind of moving forward with my surrogacy process, which was great and very exciting. Um, and for some reason in 2016, I, I kept getting sick. Like I kept getting cold viruses um, to the point where the, the mucus in my lungs did start to, to build up. Um, I was in Madrid. I had to go to the ER in Madrid, um, which was a disaster. We had to cut our trip to Spain a little short. Um, And I came home and I talked to the doctors and they were like, "Okay, you know, we can continue throwing some oral oral antibiotics at this or, you know, we can do a little throwback and put you on IVs. 
and it'll probably knock it right out of you and we'll be done with it. And I was like, you know what? Let's just go throwback. on IVs. A little throwback. <laughs> I hadn't done IVs for 10 years. Um, but I fell right back into the swing of things, called my home healthcare team and, you know, got my nurse to come. And um, it, it didn't seem to interrupt my life as much as it did when I was a kid. Um, I went to the office with my IV in. I, you know, I just did what I had to do. And I was like, okay, I feel great now that that's over. Mm -hmm. Um, during that process, I had lost 10 pounds, um, which on me is significant. And mm -hmm. that's when, when I was very thin, I felt a lump in my breast. Oh God. Oh, God. Jesus. So <sighs> I, that can only be one thing. Right. Yeah. I tried to convince myself that it was <laughs> not breast cancer. I was like, no, this is tied to my menstrual cycle or right. I lost weight and, right. you know, so let me, let me see if everything gets back to normal. So Again, so literally when, you know, it rains, it pours, got a promotion at work um, oh. in April, bought a house in April, implanted our embryos May 1st, found out we were pregnant May 8th, and found out I had breast cancer on May 16th. Oh, Damn. Yeah. So, so it was a lot. <laughs> I, I like to hear you kind of laugh about it, by the way, is like yeah. a very inspiring thing. Because um, right. <laughs> um, I just like at that point, I don't think I knew what else to do. I was just right. like, okay, so my Sarah gets pregnant and I have breast cancer. So like what, I mean, what do I, what do we do? And there right. were days that I was literally like, crying at one moment and then my surrogate would call and tell me that they just had did a great sonogram and I'd be like laughing right um and then when she called to tell me she had she was pregnant with twins I oh was my like, god all right oh, so wow. both embryos stuck I was wow. like I implanted both embryos that was our intention both stuck right and I knew at that point I was like I have to make quick decisions here because the babies are going to be here you know mm. she was due in January of 20 um 2017. So I was like, all right, the babies are coming. We have this cancer. And I thought, all right, two new lungs, two new babies, time for two new boobs. So that was my decision. <laughs> that was my decision. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so I decided for me, because I did the genetic testing, I didn't have the BRCA gene. Um, the doctors kind of came back and said, you know, yeah, this is kind of just bad luck. We don't know if it's tied to how many chest x-rays you've had over your life. We can't say for sure we have no clue um so you know treatment was either a lumpectomy a mastectomy or a bilateral and i thought bilateral was the way to go i really didn't want to have to worry about this coming back um i wanted to be just completely done with breast cancer so yeah yeah that's wow. um it's insane that is uh wild um yeah. okay so now you've gotten past that the the, tw the twins come. Yep. Um, what is what is life like now? And how have you? Was there ever a chance, like a time when you wanted to, like we thought you might might give up, or it had been too much, or uh, how do you say organized? Like those are those are like my the, yeah, the first questions yeah, that come thoughts. to mind. Yeah. <laughs> so life with kids, I mean, it's just it's just birthday. Um, put my health into perspective and realize I have to be very healthy and on top of my game with my health so that I can take care of my kids. So, you know, those are two very competing priorities. Like you have to take care of the kids. You have to take care of your health. Mm -hmm. um, but they just bring, they bring so much joy into our lives. They're a handful. They're so funny. They crack us up. 
Um, so it really is just such a wonderful experience. And, you know, I've been lucky. The kids do go to, you know, I call it school to make myself feel better that I'm a working mom. Um, <laughs> but they go to daycare. And <laughs> I've been lucky that they haven't, they haven't brought home anything, um, that I've really caught out of the, out of the ordinary. I think I've only had like two or three colds since they've been born. So, you know, I've been trying to keep really healthy. I'm just very vigilant about washing my hands and making sure, you know, that they stay healthy when they can. So, um, yeah. And no, I don't ever feel like I, I was going to give up through any of this. And I think, I think knowing that my surrogate was pregnant before getting the breast cancer diagnosis was really important because that gave me something to fight for. And it gave me something new to fight for. And I Mm -hmm. knew like I could not give up. Um, I had these kids coming and, and I wanted to be a family with Jimmy and the babies. And, you know, there was just giving up was not an option to me. Mm -hmm. So it's still, yeah. And it still isn't like, that's it. If something comes along, we're going to fight it and we're going to do what we can. Um, That sounds like it's always been like that. And that's great. And and knock on wood, nothing else comes along. I, um, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like you've been through quite a bit. I'm knocking. Um, so I, I think, I, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're doing the residency with us this month on breathing because that way, you know, we can kind of, you know, attack a a lot of, a lot, you you have a a pretty large life story. Um, so I think, you know, it'll be, it'll be fun to attack that from a number of different angles and, you know, hopefully now our listeners will have a little context to what you're going to bring to, bring to the conversation. Um, you know, I, I think before we wrap up this particular episode, you know, I do have one final question, um, is, is, is kind of like. What have you learned from all of this? I have learned that a good attitude really helps in this fight and really helps in Mm -hmm. success with a chronic illness. I think if you have a good attitude and you approach it with an I can win and I can do this mentality, I think everybody around you takes that on and is, you know, better prepared than to be an even stronger support system for you. So I think going into it with that mentality is so important. And I know, you know, everybody needs to have their moments. And that's why I say I always give myself an hour or two hours to be sad when something happens. But, you know, I've learned that taking action um, is really important to a positive outcome. Yes. I I mean, that's Tiffany. That's basically your mantra too. Oh, for sure. I don't, I don't mess around. Yeah, I'm like, you oh. can't. <laughs> if you see something, say something. That's what I yeah. always say. If something oh, seems wrong, sure. call your team. Yeah, um, get it yeah. checked out. Don't sit on it. And I think that that's so important. Yeah, even if it's the littlest of things, it's just it'll make you ease your mind a little bit just to get it checked. That's oh, great. totally, totally. Um, mm. Well, uh, March, thanks for joining us today, and we'll uh, look forward to having you back next week. Uh, yeah, uh, for those of us who are great. listening, we're listening every th- uh, we post every Thursday. Uh, yeah. You can get us on Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Um, or uh, if you do, what am I trying to say? If you do like us on iTunes, make sure you subscribe, yeah. rate, and review. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars for March this week. Um, yeah. Our uh, podcast, our, our Instagram podcast, or our Instagram profile is <laughs> at breathe underscore in underscore pod. That's also our email address, breathe underscore in underscore pod at asizen.org. I don't know why this is so hard today. Um, <laughs> I, I know, right? Like, I'm having such a hard time getting through this. Uh, 
apparently. It was a lot of story, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 this is true. Um... And uh, that's it. We will see everyone next week. Yep. Thanks for joining us today, Marge, and we'll, we'll see you Thank two next you. week. Sounds Bye. good. Bye. Bye.